Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show, and you definitely got tickets. And drinks. Now hurry and make it back to your spot. Pass this person and that person about 20 more. Ooh, watch out for feet. Hey. Just keep going. A little further. Oh, there's your friend. Over here. Right where you want to be. Close enough to see the set list. And they're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower. Every note. Or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew. Cruising. You can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at AmFam.com. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Back again for another episode, guys. I tell you, the show has really been a wonderful thing uh, for me, but more importantly for other people. You know, when I started thinking about doing this podcast, I really wanted to focus on amazing individuals who are working in the background and maybe not getting the shine that I think they deserve. And there's so many people out there that we're putting out there on a pedestal and we're pushing and pop culture and you know there's people that they need a voice and they need exposure and I'm so happy that I'm getting a chance to put out this wonderful individual to the public Anthony Capristo Anthony is an amazing amazing guy and also happens to be my financial advisor and kind of the story of how we all came to know each other is really interesting and I'm excited to explore it on the show but uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Anthony first. Caring, listening, and problem solving. Anthony is an invaluable resource and advocate for his clients. Having had a wide variety of industry experiences, Anthony feels equally as comfortable advising professionals, business owners, and families alike. Anthony was born and raised in northeastern Pennsylvania. He obtained his undergraduate degree in business administration and finance from Pennsylvania State University. He also has a master's in business administration from Misericordia University. Hope I didn't mess that up. After college, Anthony furthered his education and obtained the following professional designations to better serve his clients. He is a certified financial planner, enrolled agent, chartered financial consultant, chartered life underwriter, chartered advisor for senior living, retirement income, certified professional, registered employee, benefits consultant, chartered healthcare consultant, chartered advisor in philanthropy, chartered special needs consultant, accredited estate planner, and accredited investment fiduciary. Anthony has over a decade of industry experience, and prior to founding Forthright Wealth Planning, his most recent employer was a very large registered investment advisory firm based out of Acamas, Washington. Anthony believes in quality over quality. He prides himself on having open and honest conversations in which clients feel that he understands their values and goals. Anthony works with clients all around the country, both in person and virtually. Additionally, securities and advisory services offered through Centaurus Financial Incorporated, member uh, FINRA and SIPC, and a registered investment advisor, Forthright Wealth Planning and Centaurus Financial Incorporated are not affiliated companies. I'm so pumped to have Anthony on the show and looking forward to exploring more about how we met and all the wonderful things that he does to help people. Without further ado, 
Anthony Capristo. Hello, sir. Hey, Darren. How are you today? I'm good. And yourself? I am doing really well. Thanks for asking. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show with me today. And uh, I think we're going to have a good time. I know we are. Thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, Anthony, you're uh, one of my uh, favorite people, I have to say. Um, you're always very punctual, on time. You're honest and very kind. And I think a lot of people are going to connect with that. That's great. Well, that's, you know, that's like most things you do in life. You just try to find different ways that you can connect with people. And all the things that you describe in me are also qualities that I, I echo and I feel the same way about you. I just feel like from the first time that we met, we just had a really good natural connection. And I'm happy that we've, we've kept it alive, even being about as far away in the country that we could be from each other right now. <laughs> That's correct. We are, we are not close. You are in Pennsylvania, right? That's correct. I'm in Allentown, um, Bethlehem area of Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Philadelphia. Man, you know, I just had a podcast yesterday with uh, one of my connections who lives in Philadelphia, so not too far from you. And uh, happy to say Philadelphia is my largest listenership base, actually, which is crazy. Yeah, um, there's a lot of people from I, I think there's just a lot of like even a lot of the people that I'm talking to and friends of mine, like there's more people who are just listening to podcasts out here. I was talking to just two people this week where I normally have not been a big podcast listener. Mm -hmm. like mostly I'm doing reading or mostly for the work I do. I don't have a lot of time to listen to podcasts, but I've actually started to listen to them now on my commute to in and out of work because a few different people I've been talking to, it's kind of got a lot of buzz even more recently. So um, I've been, I've been enjoying it. Yeah, you know, I recently got into podcasts, I would say in this last year, I, I actually, I don't even think I really ever tried to listen too much before. And then I started listening to a couple that I thought were really interesting and I'd be driving around. It's a good excuse to just have something on to fill your brain with that may be interesting. And I was like, they're basically doing what I do, which is just chat with people. Uh, and I do it all the time. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I could do this. <laughs> and so... It just technology is so amazing now where you could have things like Anchor and you could host your podcast on there for free and you just need minimal equipment and boom, you have a podcast, you know. It is pretty amazing. And I was when I listened to them, the ones that folks just create either off their phones, I was very surprised with the quality and it just how good you can get a podcast to be and how professional it sounds. I thought people were doing them in studios together. And things like that, where right. just being like professionally mastered, and it's just everyone's just doing it wherever they're at on their phones, and it kind of, it just comes out great. It does, and you see with this, like the quality is amazing. Like I have a microphone, but I never ask any of my guests to have a microphone because honestly, when they speak on their phone, it comes out super clear on their end, especially. So it's really amazing just the power of the phone to be able to just create your own kind of virtual studio and in the past you would have to have all this tech all this 
like an actual studio and pay for that time to produce something. And now it's kind of in the hands of everybody. And it's, it's interesting to see what people come up with. Yeah. There's just a lot of good, a lot of good information going on. It's just getting easier and easier for people to, to have access to stuff and get their message out on things that they feel passionate about, which I think is really cool. It's a really good expression of things um, for people where they wouldn't have been able to, to find um, the audience that they have when they, when they push it out through a podcast. Definitely. And um, today's show, I think it's going to be very interesting because it's the first time on my podcast that I've broached a subject that I think is very personal to a lot of people, um, universal to a lot of people, um, and that is not fitness based, generally speaking. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about money, I guess, (laughs) and uh, retirement and all those things. And uh, I know that's been a, a a big part of my life in the past few years is really understanding that better. So tell us a little bit about your background and financial advisement or even better, like how you got into it. What was your, what gave you the motivation to be into this field? Yeah. So I think that growing up when I saw around me, so I grew up in an area that wasn't extremely wealthy. It was Northeastern Pennsylvania. And I saw a lot of poverty around me. And I thought about that being at a very young age, I think I was like 13 or 14, when you when you first like develop to the point that you start to see in your own life, where you stack up amongst other families monetarily, when you don't really understand your relationship with money as well. I saw that being the, the change that I wanted to make in the world. So that was how I wanted to help people was to remove some of the pains around money that people have, um, the stressors around it, the quality of life that it it provides when they when they have money to live off of and then i realized that you would have thought from where i grew up that money problems were the things that people had when they didn't have money but what you learn is that whether you have money or you don't have money or you have a lot of money and then you don't have money or you don't have money and then you have a lot of money everyone has their own different relationship with money and it just presents a different set of challenges for them so that was the thing that as I've kind of evolved my way that I practice to help people was around understanding that and helping guide them through that so they can make better decisions to live happier and fulfilled lives. So what, so knowing that and, you know, having the motivation for that, what, what has been your specific approach to working with people in regards to money or, you know, maybe their fears about planning for the future? I think a lot of, what gets understated with money is it actually relates a lot to fitness. There are some things in investing and working with money that are very much like what you do. It's if you do certain things, um, you'll get results. So what you can control on the inputs eventually gets you results. Maybe not the perfect results that you're looking for, but at least gets you results closer to things aligned with your beliefs and core values. What happens with um, a lot of the, the people who we, we work with is they initially come in and they start talking to us about what they think they're going to get. Like everyone thinks that when they need to fix something with their money, it's either um, they want to talk about the investments and how things are done, but it really done correctly. You take a step back and you figure out what's going on in people's family dynamics. You figure out what challenges they've had to help actually improve their relationship, which is 
it's different. It's not something that, um, it's not something that a lot of people do. Mostly it's just the industry that I work in. Um, it's more of a sales and marketing industry. So you have a lot of people Mm. doing things that are not necessarily helping people, but they're the thing that, um, seems like it would be helping people. Like if you were a novice in something and you were to connect the dots with one data point, you would say that makes sense but then it then doesn't necessarily equate to what's right for people. So trying to do the harder things for people, but getting the results that they want long-term, as long as they're willing to participate and put the work in, it really comes down to having patience and having discipline. So what is the, when people uh, first come to, let's say they're seeking out financial advice, they say, you know, I really need to have a financial advisor. What do you think the big, biggest miss? perception people have about working with an advisor is a financial advisor i think they feel like they're going to be judged by somebody i think they're going to feel like they're going to walk into someone's office and if the perception that they feel like they should be or where they should be if they're not right there now then they feel like they're either going to be judged or they feel like maybe they shouldn't be working with someone or they're just afraid to be you know, honest with themselves about where they're at and be to the point where they want to accept help. The reality is in my, in my job, and I think it would be the same for you in fitness is you see people. Mm -hmm. And like when someone, someone doesn't come to you that is like running a, a marathon quicker than you saying, Hey, can you help me? They come to you from a spot that if they knew everything and if everything was done perfectly, I wouldn't have a job. There'd be nothing to fix. There'd be no help to provide. So it's just knowing that you can, um, knowing that you're talking to someone who isn't going to judge you, because I think that that's the number one thing that stops folks from seeking out help. But I think the other one is sometimes they feel like they are in a position to work with somebody because they don't know, they don't, they think they have to have a lot of money to work with somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, you work with, you work from anyone from a, um, in our business, people who are coming out of college who have debt and don't have any assets yet but to help them to people all the way up to retirement or retirement and then planning for how they're going to give the money to their heirs eventually so the whole spectrum of just about everybody needs some help and our job is to just find out where they're at and help guide them through that that continuum um, of of where they're going to be through their lives you know what's interesting you uh mentioned about um let's say college students come out with student debt. And one of the things I've really been focusing on and listening to in podcasts is the whole concept of kind of the younger generation now and the, this huge amount of debt that they're racking up in college. And, you know, coming out of school with a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars $200,000 of debt. And how do you, how do you approach that? Like, what is, I don't know how you feel about that, what your take is on that and the whole thing, but in, in a sense of, if somebody's, how do you advise that with somebody like, hey, how, having to deal with that? I, I worry about it from the beginning, um, from when even uh, students are signing up and picking the college that they're going to. Because the way that I look at it is, for them, a lot of times there are students who just know, like they're going to school and they know what they want to be. But there's a lot that are going to schools and they're not even sure what their major is going to be yet, but they're just picking a school and they're just getting a lot of debt without even the output of 
of what their job is going to be like or what a career path would be like for them. So I think that some some counseling initially for the families when they're when their kids are going through um, getting ready to go to school, counseling them and just figuring out just at least setting their kids up for success where they realize, OK, if I'm going to do this job and it's everything doesn't have to be about well, how much money are you going to make when you come out of school? Because I think that that's like the the benchmark for it. But it, it's a, right. it's a mix of how happy are you doing this versus what other trade-offs make you feel fulfilled in life or how much money will you make or how long do you want to work for? There's a lot of different things that go into the decision for what someone eventually goes on to do in life. And a lot of people, they get it wrong. It's a tough decision to make at such a young age. And I do wish that it was more affordable for a lot of the students going because they don't know what it's going to feel like to pay back that debt because they've never been in a situation to pay it back. So we just try to create an awareness around that stuff. And we also try to help the parents to do things to position their assets um, so that if there is the ability to qualify for student, um, any type of like federal aid, we try to improve the probabilities of that happening. Mm. And then after school, we work with some of the folks who can qualify for um, the public service loan forgiveness programs to try to help them with that too, if that's the route that they want to go down and try to pursue. You know, I've heard and some recent podcasts I listened to that there's some colleges that are they're they're doing these experimental programs are basically where I think Purdue University is one of them. I was listening to I think it was the president there and he was talking about they pioneered this two or three year program where people some students they can go to school for free essentially but after they're done um the job that they work in the whatever criteria for a good job is that that they're paying back like I think four or five percent of their gross salary um, back to pay for the schooling that they had so that the students aren't racking up this gigantic amount of debt uh, during school. Have you heard of this or aware of it or in your thoughts related? To I it? actually have not heard of it yet. Um, so tell me again, how, how does it actually how does it what is your understanding of how it works? My understanding is that it's it's not like having and tell me if I'm wrong here, but like with student debt, like it's like if you go bankrupt, you still owe it. Right. It's not like it's a forgivable thing. That's that's correct. In most cases. Yes. Right. Right. So it's very unlike a lot of things. And so in this case, it is it's more of not like it's hanging over your head and you, you keep it forever like luggage or something like that. You know, it's a. It's a thing where I guess there's like private private firms and stuff that they're basically saying, hey, we will put you through school. You can go to school on us, but then we come back, we're going to take a percentage of your income for two to three years to help repay back your schooling for that. I'm, I'm sure it's much more complicated than that. I, I'm forgetting a little bit of what they were saying as far as the complete mechanism of how it works, but I thought it was interesting as kind of this study of how to get more people to go to school for free and then not having it held over their head for like, because I know for a lot of people, they hold that student debt for a long, long time. They defer it forever. And, you know, 10, 15 years later, they still got student debt. So this is basically like, hey, we're taking it out of your hands where you have to like make a monthly payment for it, where it just gets taken out of your paycheck. Right. I think it's good if you still the, the troublesome thing about it is if you still owe the same amount back, 
Mm-hmm. And at some point, really, it becomes the decision of why why are we going to the schools that we're going to? What are the what what programs are worth us spending additional dollars to go to these programs? And where does it become where does it become worth it for the student? The hard part is you never know what other things come from getting education. I mean, you can go to an educational program and spend, you know, an extra $40,000 there, but go and meet someone who you fall in love with and then you get married and then you have a very happy life. Or you meet a professor there that you didn't even know existed and they become a good friend and they, they guide you through life. So a lot of it, a lot of the randomness of the decisions that you make eventually you you just have outcomes that you probably couldn't even predict at some of the best parts of doing certain things in your life. So they're, they're difficult decisions to make. I think for most people, they make a decision, they stick with it. And then I think the more in life that you can stay out of the what ifs, right? what if this, what if that, because you never know. You just focus on the things that you can control going forward and just do your best with those things. And I think that they do their best to pay the loans off over a reasonable period of time. I just worry about a lot of the folks who don't really understand what it feels like to earn a paycheck yet, don't really understand what it feels like to work a job that they just don't enjoy, and they rack up a lot of debt and they get stuck doing things that were not really worth it because there's a lot of social pressure to go to college and to go to college right out of high school and to go to certain colleges when maybe – Um, it's not even the right fit. And I think a lot of it's the parents too. I think the parents um, oftentimes put pressure on the kids to go to certain schools because the parents are kind of continuing to live their life of being proud about their kids by sending them to certain schools where oftentimes it should be, um, they need to maybe think a little bit more differently about it and how it's approached for the kids. You know what? Love that. Love that thought process. I have actually been talking to my wife about this quite a bit lately. I don't know, something like I loved college. I really enjoyed it. And it was not even an option for me. It was my parents was like, you're going to college. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate. You know, I had a scholarship. I had very little debt. And then through my graduate studies, I had zero debt because I was a grad assistant. But um, I know that's not the case always for a lot of people, but I feel like there is this kind of push to always go to college. And, you know, there's some interesting statistics. I think the most recent, like only 59 percent of students graduate from college. Mm -hmm. And even if you like made it free, it'd probably still be the same thing. You know, I mean, it's not for everybody all the time. And we kind of we have this stigma about vocational school, like it's some lesser form of of being, you know, of education in a sense of like, you know, these are good jobs too. Not everybody's going on, not going to go on to be at, you know, get an MBA and be in Harvard business and, you know, be an entrepreneur. I mean, I think we kind of throw around, everybody has their own business. Everybody starts their own business and do that. That's not for everybody. And so it's interesting. We are, we were having this discussion, you know, with our, about our daughter and college. And we were like, well, you know, we, we don't want her to have all this debt coming out of, college we want to save for it and then we were kind of like well maybe maybe it's more like instead of forcing and say hey you have to go to college say hey you know college is a good idea we think it's great you learn a lot about your life beyond just the academic environment but maybe say hey we're going to steer you towards 
if you do want to go, let's put you in kind of some parameters or like, hey, we're in Washington state. Maybe focus on schools that are in state here that are very good. And while University of Washington is a gigantic school, it's also like 50, 60 grand a year, whereas Western Washington is also a very good school. And it's like, I, I, I don't know, I think it's like, you know, 10, 11,000, something around there. You're much more affordable. So we're trying to look at it like, well, you can have a great college experience at a big school and you can also have a great college experience at a small school also. And I think sometimes parents they look at it, go, no, you have to go to this prestigious school like this very, you have to go to University of Michigan or you have to go to Penn State or you have to go to University of Florida. You like, you have to, like, but you don't have to. And I think that sometimes it's good to hear that. You know? Yeah, I think that the focus on this, like if, if it is truly, if you know a path that you're going to go down and you want to go to some specialized school, that's going to be the, a good place to go for that because you know, then I think that's great. And some folks fall in the camp of that. And for the vast majority of the others, going to schools, I think, that are, are more reasonable for them, are a, it's a very good solution. You don't have to go to certain schools. And even like you say, which I think I would look at it a little bit differently, is the college experience. I mean, what is exact, what exactly is the college experience? Is this, right. is this where you go to is this the place that you're going to study really hard and hit the books or what is it about the, what is it about a college experience that that's important um, for most people? For me, I never, I didn't really desire that I kind of always knew like my path and where I wanted to go. So everything mm-hmm. always like uh, move through things with speed and <laughs> absorb right. what you can along the way <laughs> and hope for the best. So I got, when I graduated college, I was done at 20. So I couldn't even right. go out for a drink or anything like that at my graduation. I just kind of pushed through it as quickly as I could because I knew I wanted mm. to to get out and work and the time was valuable for me. And that was always just something that I didn't really value that as much, but I don't think I was in the – I wouldn't put myself anywhere in the majority of camp with, with that. I think a lot of folks want a more well-rounded college experience that I have. Uh-huh. But either way, I think that there's there's no perfect thing for anyone. Yeah, I know. I, I agree with that. I think, you know, you have cases like yourself where, you know, you, you're, you're, you're plowing through it. You're doing what you know what you want to do. And I think there's people who like they need the maturing time. College is a great time for a lot of people to just uh, for lack of better word, to be an idiot. Mm-hmm. And to make mistakes and in a more comfortable environment to just mature and to be away from your parents for the first time and kind of learn to live um, without that kind of overarching, you know, kind of the authority of your parents and you become your own authority in some way. And um, I, I know in my experience, I think that was that wasn't necessarily my thing. I was probably more like yourself, but I was in school. <laughs> I didn't graduate till I was like, you know, 22. Um, but I think it did give me time to kind of develop into the person more into the person who I am now. And I mean, I had a lot of friends who definitely needed a lot of seasoning and college was good, was good for that, the seasoning for that. So I I think there's a lot of it beyond just the academic uh, element of it, but I'm also not looking at it, at least for my daughter of like, Hey, this is like a must. Like, I, I hope so. I really, cause I think there's a lot of good to it, but I just, I just don't want her to be in like tremendous debt for it. Um, as college has gotten tremendously expensive and I'm not so sure it's gotten tremendously better. 
<laughs> for the experience at the same time. It's very administrative heavy, you know, in terms of um, in the schools and uh, depends on, you know, the faculties are very different depending on what schools you go to and stuff. But uh, it's just interesting how that plays into the financial portfolio of a person as they're growing up. So I was just curious, you know, asking you your mindset about that. Yeah. I think probably about one half of even the college that most students attend, even if they found something that was targeted towards what they wanted to do. I think that there's a lot of things that you can go ahead and supplement after college. If you want to learn about it, like you can kind of do it all a cart, what you want to do when you want to do it and go figure out the skills that you want to learn in the future. It's great to get a foundation, but I think much of learning is done by doing. And Agreed. most of what I've learned that has actually made me be able to do anything um, that I feel like I'm okay at for the folks that even I help now, I never learned any of that in college. I learned it all from yeah. talking with folks. Like they can't teach you in a textbook um, how to extract the correct information from a conversation to adequately help somebody. They can't, that's, that's a learned skill that you practice and you get better at. But much of what I would have learned, even getting out of college, I felt inferior to do my job. I graduated from mm. college. I started doing a job in finance. And I sat there and I was like, I don't really understand any of this, even though, <laughs> I, like, even though I studied. And then that was kind of the catalyst of perpetually wanting to get better and working on something yeah. every day, whether it be 30 minutes of reading on anything um, to just kind of compound that over years to the point where you feel like you can be a, be a better practitioner. Now, what I will say is that the more you learn, the less confident you become in the decisions you make in a lot of cases. Hmm. It seems like it would be the opposite. It seems like... Explain that. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd, I would describe it as like a circle. So if you were to put a dot, if you were to take a pen, you're just to, to dot the middle of the paper... And you were to take a perimeter of that circle. So if what you know is in the is like the dot, then all the things that you're unconsciously incompetent about, the things that you don't know that you you don't know, touch the outside of that that circle. Eventually, as you grow that circle, you draw a bigger circle, and you know more things. You start to touch on things that you never even came across that you didn't know. So now you have all these things that when you knew the basics, you didn't know like the 200 level stuff that you're like, oh, there's all these other problems or contingencies or complexities that I wasn't even thinking about. So you actually think about things on a deeper level. So a large part of what we have to do in our firm when we help people, because we're very detailed oriented people, we have to take these complicated decisions and distill them down into simpler things. Otherwise, we would be sitting there all day talking about a very small detail and all the. Great stuff. <laughs> so it's 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 um, it's interesting how that works. That you learn more, yet you learn more about things that you also didn't know. So it makes it even. I've realized that there's just going to be stuff to learn for the rest of my life. Yeah, of course. So definitely. So what do you think about? When so kind of a continuum on let's kind of move past college a little bit. So a person's out in there and I, out in the world and I have 
actually an interesting amount of guests who are in their 20s. I'm very fascinated by people in their 20s and what they're going through. Maybe it's just because I remember that time so vividly and and where I was at. But so when somebody's in their 20s and they're just getting out of college, what in terms of their financial plan, what should they be working on during that time? Or what's the best financial advice you can give somebody as they're beginning their career? Here's the biggest thing that I think gets overlooked for young um, younger folks, either in college where they might be able to work a part-time job and pay down some of their debt or start saving or just out of college is that if you were to take the components to building wealth over time, if that's something that's important for you and you look at all the arrows that you have in your quiver, so you can either save a lot of money, you can either invest in riskier securities that have the chance to go up more over time, but maybe not or you can um, have a long length of time. When people think about the things that are the most important for their investment success, what they get wrong is that I think they think that picking the correct investments at a young age is the most important thing to do perfectly, or saving a lot of money is the most important thing to do perfectly. But really, the most powerful thing is that they have time on their side. Time will be the thing that if you save a little bit makes $500,000 million dollars or million two million because it gets to double one more time over your lifetime, which eventually when you start saving and you're young, you put a little bit away and then it grows and grows and grows. And then eventually all the money that you saved grows and that's where you get the compounding effect. That compound interest, we can't really do a good job of wrapping our mind around. So when someone is 20 and they have amassed $10,000 and they're like, "Eh, I don't really need to work with somebody. I could just set it here. I don't have a lot of money. What I'm always looking at with that $10,000, I'm like, wait a second. If you do this correctly, this $10,000 is worth this amount when you retire. If you don't do this correctly, it's worth this amount. Even if you don't think you've accumulated a lot yet, you can still benefit for some help. And investing and saving is... We provide discipline for folks because it's not an easy thing to do on their own, but we also help them to avoid mistakes. I think that it's oftentimes thought that you're going to go and seek brilliance from somebody. You're going to have all these mm-hmm. just and greatest fancy ideas and done correctly. It's pretty boring. It should be like, watching paint <laughs> it's more like saying, don't do that. Don't make those mistakes that everyone else around you is going to make. Um, and if you don't make mistakes, the impact of that tends to be infinitely more powerful for folks over their lifetime than trying to always grasp some fancy flashy idea. But no one wants to go to the cocktail party with their friends and it doesn't sound smart and fun to talk about the things that actually work over time. No one Mm. wants to do that. You want to talk about the late latest and greatest ideas of things. And when I think about fundamentally how investments and markets work, the things that folks are talking about and the things that they're doing, they're not the things that work over time. I see. I see. So maybe like, you know, I often get like with people or I might have some friends, they said, Oh, you know, this is, this is like the hot stock to invest in or whatever. Like, Oh, did you see this glamour? Oh, Lululemon, they're up huge this quarter and stuff and this and that versus maybe the, just everyday daily grind of the, the almost boring nature of just letting your money grow, invest in it, be smart, you know, wise kind of type of thing. Yeah. 
it's a very difficult thing, which for folks who are investing now and folks who have either done it themselves is to go for the last 10 years and see investments just basically go up Mm. and not have a 10 year period where investments go down. We tend to forget that there are times when investments go down too. And we feel the most confident. So there's this whole study of something called behavioral finance, which helps Hmm. investors make better decisions. Um, It's around something called a bias, behavioral bias, which more simply put, is just a blind spot. And it's something that you can't see in yourself. So when people engage professionals like myself, I could see things in folks that they don't see in themselves. It's kind of like when you do an intro on your show and you're talking about me and you're saying things, I'm like, is that, is that really the guy that I am? Because you can see me <laughs> differently than even I perceive myself. Right. I look for those characteristics in, in, in investors and educate them around areas that I can see that are going to be problematic for them. Most people think they're really unique, but when we distill their personality characteristics, they really fall into less unique categories than they actually are in how they make decisions. What does that mean? Like, okay, so most people think they're unique, like, explain more about that. I'm curious about that. Their thought process for how they see things, they see themselves as a very unique um, free thinker with probably less relatability (laughs) from the average person. And then they come to me and within 30 minutes of sitting in a room, I can figure out by asking them questions and how they react to things, what types of issues they'll have and what will be their impediments to be a successful investor. And my job as a professional is not to say, I'm right, you're wrong. My job is to say, I noticed this gap. How do I fix this? How do I take the road to get the outcome for the client so that they have the foundation of, of, of getting to where they want to go? That's my job is to close that gap for them or figure out a way to do that. If there are folks that I can do it for, then I work with them. And if there are, if there are folks that I just don't feel like I can do it for them, then I just let them know that I don't think that we're going to be a good fit to work together, but I don't. And I, and I disclose to them some of the reasons why to try to help them because I owe them that I owe everyone who I talk to honesty. So some folks are a good fit. Some folks wind up not being a good fit. The vast majority do wind up being coachable and being a good fit. Um, if you, if you explain things to them, most will, most will um, agree over time and, 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 and be okay with some of the guidance that you're giving. But from occasional times, you just find folks who you just know they're going to hurt themselves. And morally, I would just have an issue knowing that they're likely to hurt themselves doing it on my watch. It's a large reason why I am self-employed was because Mm. someone is not a good fit to work with me. If you work for a larger company, the way the incentives work, you can know someone's going to have a problem. But if, you, if you're if you a salary employee for somebody else and they say this is going to be a client who's going to work with you, even though you know that client is likely to hurt themselves um, over their investment career and might be better off um, not working with you or not doing what you're doing, you don't get the option to, to just be honest with them and not do it. Um, so that's the great thing about being self-employed is you get to work with people who you enjoy working with. And the criteria is interesting because it's not always everyone thinks, well, I probably have to have this amount of money. That's not really even the case. Right. You have right. to be a good fit where you feel like the person that you're going to work with um, has the expertise to help you. And then it's a good fit and it will be a good good relationship all around where someone can actually provide um, a form of, of sound counsel for you to, to help you with it. 
And it's important to me to not, to always put people in to the best of my ability and better um, positions than they would be in than if they did it on their own and to not work with someone just for the sake of working with them. If I don't believe that I can provide them value and a service that's going to be uh, multiples of what they pay me, then I also tell them they're not a good fit to be a client. So there's a lot to there that I'm like, oh man, I, I, there's a couple of things I want to touch on. It was just really good stuff, but I want to go back just a little bit before going forward. So the uniqueness thing, I, I don't know why this really okay. touched something with me is, and you say people um, like think they're free think thinkers or stuff like, is it people that come in and they're like, Hey, listen, I have a good understanding of the market. Mm-hmm. Here's some ideas I have. And they think like, they're kind of like, maybe they think they're smarter than you in some areas of this. And they're like, listen, here's what I think we should be doing, but I do need some help. Like explain that a little bit more, like how people are hurting themselves in the process as well. Yeah. They hurt themselves because what happens naturally is in our minds, we're not honest with ourselves. So if we have an experience where something that we do does well, it in our minds, it's skill. And when we have an experience in our lives where something doesn't work out, it's bad luck. And that's a survival instinct that has caused us to evolve as humans and it's kept us alive. And it was different basically when you look back at our brains and how much we've evolved. We are, our brains have not evolved as much as everything else around us that's stimulating us. So a lot of the things that we think and how we perceive ourselves are oftentimes different than. Um, than the realities that surround us. Like if someone, they'll under they'll underplay things. Like if it was if they bought Lululemon and then it went down, they were just like, oh, well, that was just bad luck. Bad luck, yeah. But right. if they <laughs> bought Lululemon right before it went up, then they'd be that that same friend would be the skillful person, hmm. and that's how they would perceive themselves based off their their experiences. So the people who tend to be good fits to work with an advisor are people who want to have a level, have someone who they consider to be an expert helping them. They're willing to delegate to some extent the decision-making process and they want to pay someone because they realize that they need help and people's time helping them is valuable. And those are the, the characteristics that um, tend to be a good fit for someone to work with someone. Whenever I'm talking to someone who has never worked with a financial advisor in the past, I always want to know two questions. I always want to know why do you want to work with a financial advisor? And basically like, what do you think that they're going to do for you and why now? And those are the things that I always want to know. And that helps me figure out if it's a good, whether or not it's going to be a good fit or not. You have your own business. Um, You, you, you train um, a lot of people and can you figure out a lot of times within five lessons who's going to stick around who's going to get results and who isn't yes like literally after the first two i have a very good idea and it's almost um it's a readiness factor i like the question you said well why now and i think that's a big part of my business when i do an intake with somebody i'm like why now why is this so urgent now something happened there has to be some there was some um, clarifying incident or usually it's something happened to them medically or 
they reached some point in their life that was it very became very clear that they needed to change something midlife crisis um or the super type a behavior and this is just part of what they do and you know they commit to everything they they do um but then there's always i don't experience this anymore honestly now with my business is i've gotten to a point where it's 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 almost so private and so um, referral based. It's almost a hundred percent referral based that I, I rarely get people who I don't fit with. Um, but I've experienced that greatly in the past where I'll take on somebody. And again, that wasn't an employee situation normally with that, where you kind of feel like you need to take this person on and you just kind of know in the beginning that they're, they're wishy-washy about it. Um, or they just, it's not the right timing. The timing is not right for them. It's not that they can't do it. It's just that they're overwhelmed in their lives with what's going on and they just haven't made it a priority with that. I haven't necessarily dealt with a lot of people who thought they were like, hey, I know so much about exercise. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm going to tell you what I want you to do with me. And that, uh, that's very rare. I find that to be a very cocky thing with people. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've, that's like the rarest person I've ever run. Usually people are extremely vulnerable and semi worried when they come to me they're like because it's their body right and they're just like ah i don't want to i'm a mess i got to figure this out and stuff and and i think i parallel that some ways with how maybe people feel about financial advisement and they look at their money is so personal to people like people don't want to tell other people what they make and their salary like they're just so f afraid of the judgment behind, you know, how much they're spending and their habits. And I think that's a real issue for a lot of people. Yeah, it's the uniqueness factor. It's if you were to, to look at the folks who work with you in personal training, it might not be the case now, but you look at it all across um, the country and you look at when people either join gyms or go to gyms and when they stop going to gyms. And what I am trying to help people with is it's all the long game. It's all longer term sound decision making. So the short term, which there's no, basically no financial results that feel really good in the short term. In exercise, within 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, if you stick to a routine, if you change your diet, if you do all the things that you say, you see results, it keeps you engaged. Right. And you feel good about it. In financial planning, financial advising and helping people, they can do all the right things and still feel like they've moved in the wrong direction over shorter periods of time. What I have to help people with, which is the, the harder thing is even for in, in exercise is the long-term benefits. No one thinks about the long-term benefits when some folks do, but I don't think the majority of, I think the majority are like, Oh no, it's almost time to go to the beach. So I better spend yeah. exercising. They're not like when I'm 70, my joints are going to hurt and I don't want that problem. They're not exercising now for that. And that's the problem that I'm fixing for folks is that longer term security problem, which is a harder thing to, to fix for most people because they can put off the pain. It's funny. I feel like, you know, like with financial advisement and work and it's almost like a computer program running in the background that you never really check on too much. And it's just kind of this mathematical equation. And you're like, okay, we're doing this. We're doing this kind of this initial rush of like, okay, I'm working with you. We're doing this stuff. We're changing all these things. And then it just kind of, 
it's like it's like a directive, like an old school Tandy computer. And you put MS DOS directive, and it just starts running, and codes running in the background, and you're like, something's happening back there. I'm not really quite sure what it is, but it's like not exciting. <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, and but you're believing in something that has this that you're that's gonna go on for a really long time, and that it'll benefit you over uh, many years down the line. You know, mm-hmm. that's correct. That's hard for humans, by the way, I think, to really like grasp that concept because we're so into what's happening now in our lives. I agree. The biggest thing that I see right now, I think, for some of the younger folks who are maybe beyond the part of just starting out a career, they're getting closer to mid-career where they're hitting either their early 30s or mid-30s. I see a lot of folks who I look at them on the surface and I'm like, super successful person, doing a great career, everything looks like it's going great for them. And they feel vastly unfulfilled yet in their decision. Mm. And there's like this rush for the door of people who are talking to me who have great incomes, great jobs. And they're like, I don't want to do this any more than 10 more years. Um, and that, I think initially surprised me because I always just thought in in what I'm doing and even what I'm doing now, even since I was 20, I knew eventually I would get to the point of being self-employed to practice the way I wanted to practice. And I probably wouldn't retire from that. And I see folks that are younger, just experiencing burnout very early on in their careers, even though they're doing really well and they thought they did everything well, but they're saying, yeah, I thought this was what I wanted, but now that I have this, I'm rethinking this. And that is one of the, just one example of a hundred I can give you for the qualitative things that financial advising done right helps to fix real world problems for people's relationship with their money. Very interesting. Very interesting. I think that um, there's just a lot of directions for this, you know, and for people, I feel like money is just such a, you know, there's, there's a few things in life that feel taboo for a lot of people, you know, whether it's talking about politics, religion, things of that nature. And, you know, there's this sensitivity to it. And I think money is also one of those things. So I think it's, I, I felt like, man, this would be important to talk about because people are so still, I think, through all these times, very, very safeguarded about what they're making and how they're spending it. And I just uh, it's so personal. I, and I think I, even I, I had that feeling. I was like, well, how much money do you need to have to have a financial advisor? And it, I, I basically it was analogous to when people would work with me in the past and they go, well, I need to get in really good shape before I have a trainer. Like I need to really get in good condition first. <laughs> and it was, it may it always used to make me laugh. And uh, my colleagues were like, that doesn't, that's not going to work. <laughs> like you, you got to meet, you got to meet, we got to meet you where you are now. And, and the odds are you're not going to like get better to like have this super level of fitness. And then you're going to hire me. That's, and I think kind of with people, it's like, and when you're gonna when do you when you're gonna have this magical amount of money that you can hire a financial advisor? I don't I don't know what that is, what that means, you know. Right. I think for most people, and it helps them to, I think for most people, 
when they think they need to have a certain amount of money to actually hire a financial advisor, um, I think most of the industry, if we look at where it's at now and how a lot of folks who pay for financial advice pay for it now, which could be commission-based and some paying it based off of like a fee of a percentage of the assets that's being managed for them. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to find for a lot of the younger folks, they're going to pay more on a subscription basis. We're going huh. to pay a monthly fee for help because there's really not a lot of good help available for folks. For example, if you just worked at one employer for five years and you've accumulated X amount of dollars, how do you get help with your, with your 401k? How do you know if you should fund the traditional or the Roth? Or how do you know how to invest the monies in there? Year over year, when things are changing, how do you figure out what's supposed to be changing and what you're doing? And there's no good help available for that without doing it on a subscription basis because you can't, for most advisors, if there's impediments to being able to charge on the assets inside of a 401k, like directly billing from that, from some um, industry um, industry regulations. I don't know all the insights of, of how that works, but I know it's not. It's something that seems intuitive that, oh, this should be simple, but it's not. So I think that there's not a lot of good help. And then what you find is that you have folks who are hoping to help someone with the chance of eventually getting to manage that those investments for them and get paid at some point in the future. But those people are never made a priority. So it's kind of like everything else in life. You just pay along the way for a service that you're getting. And I almost describe it as, for a lot of the folks, an insurance policy. It's to just make sure, even if you think you're doing it well, that if you just pay someone to not make any mistakes, I find it hard to believe that an expert would not be able to provide that value multiple times over. Value could be more wealth. I think that's the tangible point. Value could be more wealth. But value can be in a time when investments go down. The fact that you still feel comfortable enough to maintain your lifestyle or you didn't have one or two years where you were just nervous and afraid and what that does to other relationships spouses have. Um, Fixing more of those types of things so people have a better quality of life and interact better with their money is is really the way that I feel like it it should it should happen for most folks. Be surprised the amount of times you sit down and you counsel a family and husband and wife have totally different views on what they think should happen financially or their goals right. are different. Um, and trying to help find something that works in a dynamic is kind of like what pieces together the puzzle and makes it work. In the industry. Um, those types of things, whether it be that counseling a family and getting the dynamic of their getting the dynamic right. So you can actually effectively help them. I feel like the industry lacks terribly there that it's very quantitative. It's very much, don't you want to make more money? Of course. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like an infomercial almost, (laughs) Um, but it's, it's not the way it works because people have more or less money. And I see people with lots of money that are very unhappy. It's people with very little money who are very happy. So it's not just the more, it's getting behind things and understanding the why and helping to create freedom around their money where folks are not worried about it anymore and they can go on and do the things that they want to do. And that's a beautiful thing that you can provide people with in my industry is that freedom to help people and and do that for them where they were not able to um, to do that for themselves, or they just didn't even realize that 
that type of help existed because they, they just never knew it was out there. Yeah. You know, and I think this is a, it's a great segue to me into kind of a deeper dive into financial planning. I think at least from my perspective, a lot of people think about it from, you know, with their assets and what they're investing in and things of that nature, but maybe don't often think about concepts such as like life insurance. I think that was surprising for me is, you know, the focus on life insurance and estate planning and things of that nature. Maybe talk a little bit about how the importance of that in relation to just general, you know, financial planning. Right. When you think about financial planning, it is not just the investments, it's the taxes. How do you, how do you figure out how to either pay less in taxes if that's, if that's a goal so that you retain more of the wealth? How do you make sure that you um, have the correct insurances in place so that you have the highest probability of um, making it to retirement or providing for your family. Life insurance is pretty simple. In most cases, it's income replacement. So if someone makes a certain amount of money and provides for some of their family or they provide for someone else or they have some obligation that relies on them, if something happens to them that they pass away, there is nothing else besides a life insurance policy that could provide for that level of income replacement. Simply what the insurance company does is pulls a lot of people together, knowing that it's an unlikely risk, but a catastrophic one if it does happen, and then charge premiums to, to pull the risk so that everyone can, can pay something to remove that risk from their life. They could fully insure against it, partially insure against it, but also um, just kind of remove it. And life insurance is the only thing that can do that. I think the biggest thing that what I see with life insurance in the marketplace is that when I talk to folks and I'm like, okay, well, if you make $50,000 a year and your child was just born today and we arrived that maybe if something happened to you and you passed away, then maybe your family would need a million or a million and a half dollars to, to maintain, you know, your, your income and replace that over, over the child's life until they become sustainable and the income is less relied upon. If you look at that, what I find is that you might arrive at an amount of insurance that, that makes sense for folks, but then the insurances that are the best for the consumer are also the ones that pay, um, tend to pay the advisor the least amount of money to, to actually place the policy. It's called mm -hmm. term insurance. So incentives are one of those things that are extremely powerful. And like year over year, it constantly surprises me just how people's responsive to incentives are and how you could take something that maybe is not as good of an idea but start to justify it because of where the compensation lies. So I find a lot of people who I'm like thinking like they probably need life insurance. And I'm like, they probably need a million dollars of life insurance. And then they probably need it for like 20 years. And then the next year, what happens? They come back and they're like really proud to come and see me. They're like, yes, Anthony, I got that life insurance. Hmm. And they wound up getting like $50,000 of what's like called a whole life policy. And they're like, well, I wanted something that was going to be there in case something happened to me. And then I start to say, well, the real risk is if something does happen to you, how does your family survive off that $50,000? That's going to go away really quickly. But they get sold certain things because they sit down and then they get sold things and there becomes creative cases to buy things that pay the advisor a lot of money. So my policy has been with the folks who I work with is that if I ever am compensated something for placing a policy um, like that, I just I disclose the amount I'm paid for it. 
because right. they don't know. They know that you do get paid for it. They're not sure how you get paid for it. I have no issues ever clearly disclosing every piece of compensation that comes to me um, because I think that it's important to do that. And I'm, I'm not afraid to do that either. I think that people feel like they need to compensate someone fairly for the work that they're, they're doing for them. So do you think like, you know, my understanding with life insurance uh, over the years before uh, having a more um, aggressive version of it um, and more a better income replacement version of it, most of the people I have known have always had very small levels of life insurance, like $25,000, $50,000, maybe $100,000. And I think when you're young, you go, man, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. If something happened, but I think as you get older, you realize that'll be gone in a blink of an eye <laughs> if something yeah. happened. And I, I think there's almost this also this uncomfortable nature of speaking about your potential death, you know, um, earlier than I mean, everybody dies. But, you know, thinking about what if something happened earlier? And I think that hits a nerve with people. I even know, like I told my parents how much you know, my life insurance is and uh, what Michelle's life insurance was. And they have a financial advisor and they were shocked at how much mm-hmm. that we have. They were they were like blown away. And and I said, yeah, if something happens to me. I want my wife to have a very comfortable lifestyle. And I know now she will. It will be uh, really good for her. Um, and obviously nobody wants that to happen. But um, I think there's uh, there's just a point for me where I realize, you know, it's you have to start talking about that stuff. You have to have the conversations of what if you did pass away and how would they, the, how would they survive when you're not around? And I think those, those are important conversations. And I think really difficult conversations sometimes. I would imagine that you're having with people because sometimes people don't want to face that. I have a joke about those types of conversations. And I say they're the best types of conversations for us to have next year. <laughs> right, right. And that's, that's how it works. Um, the, the number for the life insurance, if you think about it and you think about how you can effectively plan around it, is you probably start at a number that seems high. But then when you kind of do, do the math into your income and what it would be replacing, most cases, then years out, if your savings increases and you want to insure less against that risk, you can decrease the insurance amount. It's an okay thing to do. But what gets missed is, well, I'm not going to need this much 20 years from now. Okay, but you you need it now. So you could always decrease it later. And that's part of the reasons to have an ongoing relationship with someone. So it's actually being looked at so that you're not just paying for a bunch of things that you once needed but don't necessarily need anymore. Right. That makes total sense. And um, it's just an area, you know, I I listen to – a lot of shows over the years and I've listened to a lot of financial analysts and stuff. And at least for me of what I have listened to, I, I hear a lot about savings and stuff like that. And uh, you know, people putting together, putting together budgets and stuff. I just don't often hear people discussing life insurance all the time. And I think it can be touchy for some people, but I think for my listeners, I think it's good to hear it because I think it's um, people are getting, they're maybe getting life insurance, but they're getting drastically low levels of it. Um, for income replacement that if it came down to it, they'd be in pretty bad position. I mean, I know like my my grandmother passed away uh, recently and her life insurance was like $10,000. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that doesn't do anything. 
for anybody, pretty much. I mean, it's it's just not much, you know. I mean, and, and you know, who knows what her advisement was? Probably nothing related to it. But I just thought, man, you know, I don't want to end up. I don't want to leave that to my my daughter and my wife if something happened to me. I want to make sure they're taken care of. But I'm just. I don't always see that people are thinking about that stuff all the time. You know, if you look at the risks that insurance companies are willing to insure against, they are the ones that are catastrophic, but also uncertain. And when there's uncertainty, well, that means that, you know, we joke and say the the best time to talk about life insurance is, is next year. And the best time to buy insurance, life insurance is when you're already are sick. But right. it doesn't work that way because then you don't qualify for it. So when right. you come, it's like anything else. It's like putting off the healthy eating routine till next year because you're 30 and you exercise and you're in good shape. And maybe some green vegetables would be great, but you just enjoy having a stick of butter more. So <laughs> it's an easy thing to put off until something happens and you go to the doctor and then they're like, whoa, wait a second. This isn't right anymore. But when those things happen, then you don't qualify anymore. So you have to buy it at a time where the risk is still uncertain because the insurance company, basically, the better you do, the worse the insurance company does. And the worse you do, the better the insurance company does. So Crazy, right? <laughs> so they're on the hook um, for the amount of life insurance that you, that you applied for after they approved you. So they don't want it. They want to make sure that they have a, a good level of certainty that you fall into categories of people that are going to be um, reasonable for them to be insuring. Yeah. Not, makes total sense. It's interesting. Perfect. It's kind of crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't think it gets talked about enough. I think it's because it's also not as exciting of a, of a, like of a conversation to have. You think about life insurance and you think about the person who's going to show up like with the leather briefcase and the tweed sport cup. <laughs> I, that might be coming back now and being more popular, but <laughs> but that's what you think about as opposed to what everyone wants to talk about is how exciting um, investing is. But there are things that are impediments that stop people from getting to their goals. And if someone was to pass away, that income going away is a really big deal. And to really think through what that would be like in someone's life um, is a really big deal. The second thing is then once you, you get someone to realize it's a big deal is then as a professional, it's to still do the right thing because once the client realizes they need some form of insurance or whatever they might need, they're in an extremely emotional state about it. So they're very vulnerable and that's when you start to see um, folks get taken advantage of and the professional still needs to do the right thing for the consumer, even though there's no perfect there's in seeking perfection where you can find really minute spaces where something maybe could have done a little bit better, but nobody's perfect. And then drastic gaps where you just see like, okay, well, this was just someone just not being very well taken care of. Right. I think that's an interesting point. And one that's very important to emphasize is the emotional element of it is making decisions when things are extremely emotional. Not always the obviously, and in many phases of life is really not advantageous for you. And I think financially, if you're making emotional financial decisions, somebody passes away, it's, it, it can be very difficult to have clarity about what's the right thing to do. Yep. I, I agree with you on that. It's, it, you know, things that happen are 
the things that you find when someone wants when someone wants life insurance when they come to you and they're like i need life insurance i'm like wait a second what happened because, <laughs> because no one is like no one's you know like you know saying like i think i need some life insurance it just doesn't doesn't happen that way um and i think it's either something either changes in someone's health or someone close to them or they've now experienced something um I use the analogy of getting a speeding ticket. I won't admit whether I've gotten one or not in my life, <laughs> but but um, if you get a speeding ticket, then for the next month, you drive well under the speed limit until you revert back to probably your normal levels of driving, where once something happens really close to you, your behavior changes for a short period of time. And I think that happens too with the same type of decisions people make around things like, like life insurance is that when someone's seeking it out, either they saw something happen to someone else or have experienced something, or they saw someone passed away, a friend's parent or something like that. And there just wasn't enough to go around. And they say, this is really stressing them out. And we don't want to be in this position. Um, that would tend to be someone who would, you and you see them seeking it out. It's that same type of thing where they've now experienced something, but now they, at that point in time, skew the probabilities to make it feel like something is more likely to happen to them than it even is. Because when something close to you happens, you kind of feel like it feels more real to you than never having that happen to never having it happen to you or not having someone have something close happen to you. Yeah, well said. I, I'm not going to ask you if you had a speeding ticket. Uh, you know, we can both say we're not sure if we had one or not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's so funny, the behavior change. I think this whole concept of behavioral finance is very interesting. I, I've actually never heard of it before. And as many times as I've talked to you, this is the first I'm hearing kind of more in depth about it, which is wonderful, honestly. It's really awesome. But um I wanted to transition maybe in behavioral finance in terms of something that's very personal to people, which is real estate okay. and home buying and navigating that. And what, what do you see in your financial advisement with real estate with people? I see a lot of folks who real estate's interesting because are you buying the real estate because you're buying the optimal property that you think is going to create the best investment return? Or are you buying it for something multi-use? Are you buying it because you're like, yes, I think this is a good investment, but I'm also going to live here, so I want it to be the house that I want to be in. Those are two different things. I think what I see happen a lot from the consumers are they make the case for the personal residence being a really great financial decision because they want the house that they want to live in. So they then make it what they want it to be when maybe it's not the best, the thing at the end of their life that makes them the most, has the most money in the bank. But if it, if they have enough and they're in a position where it provided them a lot of happiness over their lifetime, then I think they have to, they have to assess those trade-offs. But the thing about real estate that makes it more unique than other types of investments, if they were to look at their 401k, where they might have something called a mutual fund, which might have something called a stock or a bond, or even exposure to real estate, is when you own a house, it becomes a little more comfortable to own a house because every day of your life, you don't see the value going up and down. It's not an exciting thing. You can kind of just sit in that type of investment. Um, 
and you just kind of own it, even though in theory the price of it does go up and down every day. But I think for most people, really determining why are we owning this property, what what does it do for us? Does it is it a thing that we own because it makes us happy? And then you assess um, the trade off of owning that versus versus renting or owning a different property where you could save more. And that's based off a lot of different things. It could be based off school districts or it could be based off of wanting to be in a specific neighborhood because you feel like it's safe or it could be just wanting to be close to a certain area that you find provides a different quality of life or less of a commute for work. All different things, I think, for folks go into decision to to buy a house. But like any decision, the deeper you dig down into it, very little is a pure financial decision. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, buying a home is is so much emotion related to it. I have a client right now who's you know buying a home in California, and it's a very big ordeal uh, for her. And and having gone through that process at many different levels a year ago, it's definitely a multifaceted process. But I'm always curious of how financial advisors view that with their clients and assisting them with that, because I'm I'm not so sure that's always a a mainstay of it to to work with your financial advisor on that level as well. I mean, I'm not do a lot of financial advisors also help with planning with real estate, estates and things of that nature. I think they do, but I think the vast majority of folks who who um, make a decision on real estate in a lot of cases they'll make that decision on their own. They'll just that'll be one of those types of decisions that they're like we're just going to go ahead and and do this. I did have a client of mine call me um, a week ago out of the blue. And she's like, I'm buying a house. And I don't even know if I like, basically, I think I like the house. I don't know if I should buy the house. How should I finance the house? But I'm going to go look at it again today. So every so often you find some folks, they're like, well, you are, you're the financial advisor. I figure I should call you with this. Um, Yeah. So you get that from time to time where some folks want you to talk them through it and help to figure it out. And then you have some folks who just go ahead and they just want to own the house. So they go ahead and do it. I don't think there's a right or wrong when you are someone's financial advisor. I don't think that they need to consult you on every decision. I, I see myself as being someone there to, to serve the client and help them. So if they feel comfortable with something on their own, then they go forth and do it. It's an okay thing to do. Um, I just want to be making myself available should they want to run something past me. I also feel like you have to, in some cases, if there's just something that I feel like just is going to put them in a bad situation over time, or it's really not going to be advantageous, um, then I owe them honesty around that and to be objective about it. But for most people, it's just, if they're debating it, it's just helping them to assess the trade-offs of the different options. And then they make a decision around it and I think it's okay. And I think the biggest thing with buying a house um, is that most decisions we make in life, we feel like have to be a lot more permanent than they are. It's okay to Hmm. do something and be like, this wasn't the house for me. It's like, okay to, to, to be okay with not doing things perfectly. And it's okay to, to be okay with feeling like you made a mistake on things. I am a fi- I am a financial advisor. I have extensive background in financial planning. When I was 28 years old, I bought my first house. 
I couldn't wait to sell it a year later. I didn't enjoy <laughs> it. I wasn't a good fit for being a homeowner because of my lifestyle. And it just wasn't the, it wasn't the right thing for me. Um, so not everyone's going to do things and it's okay to feel like you, you've either, you just, you, you weigh the information, you make the decision and then you stay away from the what ifs and then you decide whether you still like it or not. And if you do great, if you don't, you change something and there's nothing wrong with any of that. I think there's, I think that's so awesome. Um, because I think people, at least I was, when I was growing up and stuff, you kind of get this concept in your mind of your forever home and, you know, you're buying this house as this gigantic process and that like, Hey, this is the house we're going to live in. And this almost romanticized version of this is where we're going to raise our kids and all this stuff. When sometimes people create too much, uh, permanence to something you know, like that and realizing that you may be going through many houses in your lifetime, depending on where you're at and that not to make it seem like such a finality when purchasing. I agree with you. I think that, and I think that is the same with a lot of different decisions. They feel like they are irrevocable decisions and that fear around that or that permanence around it oftentimes paralyzes people from doing anything. Yeah. So realizing that you can, you can adapt and change things. If you're not happy with it, it's okay. At least you tried it. Then you like, when you learn something that you like, great. When you learn something that you don't like, you also borrow from that to make better decisions over your lifetime. I'd rather figure it out at a young age that I didn't like that experience of owning the home that helped me make different decisions over my lifetime. Like, I think that there's this, I think there's just a lot of pressure to feel like you're doing things perfectly and doing everything right. And it's just, it's okay to adapt and change things and just go on to live life and try to figure out what you want to do, but not have everyone else's feelings around how life should be lived impact um, your own happiness. Because if you do that, you never get there. You figure right. out what makes you happy and... um that's if if you can achieve that then everything's good it's the one thing my mom asks me every time every time she calls me she'll call me on the phone and like a lot of parents i think their conversations with their kids are different than mine she'll talk about a few different things she'll make a few jokes <laughs> um and then she'll say are you happy and i'll say yes and she'll say okay that's all i need to know and like yeah. i borrow a lot of that from her in what i do now just wanting to see the people around me be happy with whatever, figuring out whatever happiness means to them. And then I borrow a lot of my dad teaching me to just work hard and persistency to get to enough people to figure out what happiness means to them. That's kind of been a lot of the evolution for, you know, just trying to help people in different ways. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And I applaud you for that. And, you know, I wanted to, as we kind of get towards the end here, ask a question that I think would be interesting for a lot of people to maybe know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but is our financial advisors good self financial advisors with their own assets and in, in their finances? Um, I would say probably not. Oh, really? Yeah, I would say in most cases, um, in most cases, some of my friends, because when I worked at different jobs, I would work in cohorts of people who then I start to know hundreds of people who are financial advisors. 
and they're helping other people do things and trying to tell other people to do things that they do differently themselves. So they're mm-hmm. still doing things that don't make a lot of, a lot of sense, but we're all, um, we're all humans. So it's the same thing goes back to the beginning part where we were talking about the behavioral finance and the biases. They still have the things in their life that shapes how they make decisions in their own blind spots. They still have competing things in their lives that may make it easier or harder for them to make decisions that might be good. Like it might be hard for a financial advisor to save money if they want to save, but maybe they are married to someone who's more of a spender. So maybe it's hard for them to do the things just because they practice it in reality in their own life. Um, they may not do the best job of it, but that, I think that if they're doing it right, then those experiences help them to counsel people who are going through similar situations to try to figure out ways to work through that, that if you never did that, you wouldn't be able to work through them. One of the most powerful things that's happened over my career is I've had the opportunity to talk to thousands of people and go through the process of guiding a lot of people through all different phases of their decision-making process. And you borrow from what works, what doesn't work, and you learn that the nuances of doing it and the contingencies that happen when people are stuck on decisions, you learn that by doing it and by helping people do it. That's stuff that you can't teach in a textbook. You can't get people to, to get through those types of situations if you're not helping them to do it. So it's interesting that a lot of it is you can have the, the smartest financial advisor ever, um, technical financial advisor, like doing the technical planning. But if he can't get his audience to take action and do, then how, how successful is he? Right. So it's, it's tough to figure that out. It's a balance of making everyone feel comfortable um, and sharing even areas of your, you know, in, in, in our practice, we'll share with clients areas of our own life that we're like, yep, well, we didn't do that perfectly. Like there's definitely fitness goals and things that I would like to hit and things that I'm like kind of come natural to someone like yourself. But to me, it's not as easy of a thing um, to do. And it makes it, it's, it's hard for sometimes for people to, to kind of work through those types of things, but help done correctly. Um, I think for people is help where you, you mix in, take getting them to take action and do some things, making them feel safe that if they didn't follow through on it, they're not a failure. It's like they're human beings working towards things and it's okay. Like it's okay to talk about this plan. And even though you're working on something, the next year it comes and you're like, you know what? We didn't really make even close to as much progress as we thought we were going to make. That's an okay thing. Um, becomes more challenging if it's too hard for the person to admit that. It's, it's okay yeah. to, 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 to not be where you're at. And that's actually, that's actually to be expected for the vast majority of folks is that they, they step into action doing something, but they, they, they life, I call it life happening. They come into hard times. They come into things being not what they expected them to be. And you work through the challenges. You keep working through the process and making the best that you can out of the situations and the circumstances that you have to try to just keep, keep moving things forward, but not keep fretting on the, it's like the third or fourth time I'm saying this, because I think it's so important. 
is not just fretting on the what if could have happened, like just dwelling on those things that you're like, well, this could have happened, or I could have had this, or I could have had that. Just focusing on what you've learned and what you can do to impact everything longer term and just continuing to reset the behaviors to try to just keep helping yourself. It is nice for a lot of people. I think they have some accountability around it, but you got to help everyone take action and then provide the good counsel. And what we say is that when I'm talking to folks, all I will, everyone I think that I work with has a different perception of what my value is. It's not as clear to everyone. Everyone would say, I think this is why um, you're valuable. I've had some people who I met with last week, could they be financial independent on their own? Absolutely. Why did they make a decision to work on me with me? Because the husband and wife together, um, the wife would like to do a couple of different things. And the husband is nervous about his money, even though I look at it and I'm like, yep, you're going to have enough. Still doesn't feel the comfort to, to spend more of the money. Um, still working out through their dynamics so that they find a more harmony in their relationship together is actually why they're going to work with me. Even though if you would think of typical financial planning, you know, crunching the numbers, running this little betterment calculation, will you have enough? That didn't solve anything to make them happy over the next 30 to 35 years of their life before retirement. Solve none of that. So they have a lot but they've gone on to live a life lacking a lot of fulfillment and not doing things that they would have done. So helping to find that balance of an independent third party, I think a lot of folks find that beneficial, but everyone's reason why you help them is different. Some just like to have an expert look over things. Some there are, I don't even know. I, I'd be curious to pull every single person who works with me and be like, why exactly do you work with me? <laughs> um, because I'm not always really sure why they do it. Um, you know, that's really interesting. Know. That's really interesting. Actually, one of my clients, she is, a, I've said this a couple of times on the show here. She's a clinical psychologist and she asks these, she asks questions like that. And like for her personally, sometimes she does this exercise where she asks her friends, what's the hardest thing about being friends with me? And, and, and she's like, I don't mind the answer. She's like, but I think people I ask, they're, they make some uncomfortable a little bit because they're like, oh, um, I didn't think of uh, Well, should I tell the truth you know, <laughs> about this and that? And I think it's a, that would be an interesting exercise, Anthony. And uh, I, I, would, I would say, it's, again, man, it has to be your wonderful, obviously you're very intelligent. You, have, you know the industry inside out, but you have, you have tremendous bedside manner and you're very punctual and you get back to people, you, um, very hardworking. And I think a lot of times for people, there's a lot of that lacking when they're working with anybody is I've noticed it today in today's world that just, um, there's a lot of people who are knowledgeable and they have this and that, but I think that they just, they lack the bedside manner, um, for lack of a better term for me, it's just the, the closeness, the humanity related to, being in a profession, it can be lost on people. And I think the people who are most successful, the ones that just say, listen, I'm just like you, I'm a person. I have money, you have money, you know, I mean, I'm not perfect with it. You know, you're not perfect with it. I just, I have different educational background that have better, they have some more under, you know, some more insight about how to do this a little bit better. 
but I'm not perfect. And I think that relatability, you have very good relatability, which I think is really important. There are things in my own life that I want to change about my relationship with money. Right. I'm actually going to a two-day class um, this year to, to learn about that because even though I'm in the industry in doing, there are things that I want to change with how I perceive things and some of my habits and help through that. So that's just, it, it's just, I mean, everyone's going to have different things that they're going to, they're going to encounter that there's going to be, they're going to either desire some level of help to change something and, and recognize that maybe there are some things that you want to change and then just get some help or figure out ways to, um, to adapt and, and change. So it's in my, in my life, I always thought about this. Like, why did I want to even be self-employed doing this when you can do this um, for larger companies and live a more, you know, live, like have more stability over the short term working, right. doing it for someone else. But it was extremely important to practice the way that I wanted to practice and not have someone telling me you need to spend time here or doing here. I wanted to just do the things that I knew that people needed to be successful. And if someone needed help with something and I was the right person to help them, I wanted to be able to spend the time and do it. If, if I want to do it at like nine or 10 at night or 11 at night or Saturday night, like I want to be able to do it. I don't want someone telling me, okay, it's your time to go home. Like someone's paying <laughs> for a service. Someone needs help. Um, I had a hard time with that. And I also had a hard time working for larger companies because this is the problem with just about any company is scale. Like you can have a great idea, but then how do you scale it? So in larger companies, they then have a lot of people who have to abide to a service model that only helps with certain things or only puts folks in buckets for certain types of help because how do they train and manage uh, a force of, of folks to help when they're large, they have to do things that become less customized. I always wanted to do highly customized work for individuals. I always wanted to spend right. the time to get to the root of the, the problem and, and fix it or do my best to, to treat what's going on and, and help whether it was five o'clock on a Friday or seven or 10. Like I, it was always important to me to have that freedom to help people the way that I felt like they needed to be helped as opposed to help them in a way that just is on a profit motive for like, well, you need to go do this for this person, or there's a quota here or a quota to do this. And that's the types of people you need to help. I just didn't want those conflicts of interest. I didn't want those things in my life. It just, it didn't make me happy. So having freedom around what I do is every day I, I'm like drive to work and I reflect and I do like, I guess it's probably like 15 minutes of meditation, not like a formal meditation plan, but I just kind of like think about what am I going to accomplish today? Like, what am I grateful for today? And I think the thing that makes me smile every day is that I get to do things and help the people the way that I want to help them. And I know that they need and can spend the time doing things that, wouldn't get done other places makes me feel really good about being a practitioner wonderful well bravo for that anthony and um i'm really grateful that you uh agreed to come on and 
and provide some really valuable information that I think just generally is going to be well received by a lot of people. And I think, you know, having more financial conversations is really important uh, for a lot of people. And I know so many younger people who are, you know, they're not getting taught any real financial advice in high school and things of that nature. And they're, as they would say, they're adulting now and they are, they have to figure out what they want to do in a lot of aspects of their lives. So uh, this information is very helpful. Thank you for coming on again, Anthony, and I look forward to speaking with you another time. Likewise, and thank you very much for having me, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and a good weekend. All right, you too. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.